Digital Dust is a history podcast it's about the stuff you learned in school with a perspective you might not have considered. Hey everyone, welcome back to Digital Dust. I'm Robin. I'm Katie. I'm Liz. I'm Patrick. It's episode three. Hello. It's episode three. This is fun. This is like the first episode we've done that isn't sort of an introduction. So we've had the first two that were introductions. Yeah. More yeah. Real. This is like our first real episode. Yeah, like an actual historical topic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting there, folks. So what is that historical topic? <laughs> yeah. Oh, so I just wanted to talk about what is history. Um, we've talked about what is public history, but what is what is history? I mean, obviously, what isn't history? Katie actually found this really great quote. It says, history is the stories we tell about the past. And that's by Thomas King. He's an amazing yep. indigenous author from the University of Guelph. But the way history has been traditionally taught, it doesn't seem like history is just stories. You know, I feel like it's always been very, this is the facts and there's mm-hmm. no denying the facts and you can't interpret it any other way except this way. But yeah. yeah. And you find quickly as you continue with it too though that that definition completely changes it's no longer about facts it's about everything else it could possibly be yeah yeah i feel like there's a lot of like what history like looks like versus what it actually is you know like like the history history in the past are two different things this is like something that we learned pretty early on right that the the past is what has happened temporally <laughs> before us and then history is kind of what we remember about it what we write down about it uh, what mm-hmm. we talk about about it um, how we record it, how we record the past, um, but also yeah, a lot about interpretation. Not a, not as many facts as you're led to believe in your early years. Yeah, yeah. So I think that answers. I think that's the definition. I think we did it. Yeah, yeah. We defined it. <laughs> Podcast over. Boom. It's done. Like that every historian ever. <laughs> yeah. No, but this is a good question though, right? That like. But it's like a fundamental question to the discipline. It right? is. Yeah, and it, it's hard to define what history would be. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I have an interesting question. Go ahead. Do we have any either cringy or really good uh, stories from history classes? You know, anything? I can start if you want. Please do. Please. Okay. So my, of course, uh, in Ontario, we have to do grade 10 history in high school. So I did grade 10 history. It Obviously, the class wasn't that good. The curriculum in general kind of sucks. Because all you learn about is, like, the First World War, and then the Second World War, and then that's it. I feel like you don't really get to learn about anything contemporary, but then you also don't really get to learn about anything past when Canada was founded in 1867 and Confederation, all that jazz. So, yeah, it's very interesting. But anyway, during during our studies of the First World War, of course, what we learned about the most was trench foot. (laughs) I don't know why we spent so much time talking about trench foot. But yeah. my, my teacher actually made it pretty fun. He made us watch a lot of movies and like his slideshows are very boring. Yeah, literally Passchendaele. He made us watch, um, what's that one about the Great Depression? Cinderella Man. Cinderella Man. That's we it. watched when it it's too. Like a boxing. It's like Rocky, but set in the Depression. Yeah. It's so dumb. So edgy. <laughs> it's so, so edgy. <laughs> if you're looking for something kind of just stupid and depressing, I guess, to watch, you can watch that. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so he he did two activities that were quite famous in our high school. The first was uh, you would reenact Vimy Ridge because in the back of our high school we had like this really tall rock cliff that you could get up to, 
It wasn't that dangerous. It was fine. <laughs> <laughs> There's this jagged rock cliff right behind your yeah. school. So we would like divide oh ourselves God. up between the Germans and then like the allies. And we would all bring like, a couple rolls of socks and we would okay. throw the socks at each other <laughs> from the, from the top of the hill. And it was supposed to teach us about how the ridge was so great and it gave them such an advantage. But it was just this weird sock. It was just very strange. We didn't really learn a lot. But there was also, so a random kid would volunteer and you would have to take your shoes off but leave your socks on and he would make you sit with your feet in a bucket of cold water the entire class. And then he would make you take your socks off and show how gross your feet were and how pruned they were and and if it hurt or not. That's horrible. To like experience <laughs> trench you have to sign a waiver? That sounds awful. <laughs> like what the fuck? It was just that stupid kid who was like, Oh, I wanna be super tough and macho and it's not gonna be that bad and then you oh. just laugh at him. Yeah. Oh my wow. god. So yeah, that that's my uh history class. Go <laughs> in high school. This is low key torture. Oh like, yeah. Oh yeah. my god. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like I'm all for one. I'm I'm all I'm all for like uh uh, living history and that I think it's it's interesting you know like pioneer sites reenactments that they can be interesting for sure um, my theater background I love you know you know all that part of it um, but also putting your feet in cold water <laughs> that's not okay it's a I'm lot. done that's it's that's a lot. It. It's so with your socks on yeah too, it's like... oh god trench foot you still have your whole school day left after that right so he of still course, has to go yeah. to class yeah. with his wet socks. Nice. That's so true. He probably smells wonderful. Oh, yeah. But that was the day that we also did the Vimy Ridge thing. Oh. Or was it a different day? Either way, there were extra socks. Oh, oh true. Oh, okay. right. He also had, like, cans of sardines and stuff around to be like, this is the food that, they, you know, like the canned peas, sardines, all the food. Did that you have to eat to it? In the trenches. <laughs> no, thank God. We just got to, like. Oh, yeah. No, that's crossing a line. That's that's too far. <laughs> that's not cl- fully. <laughs> you could you could put feet in cold water for hours on end, but having them eat canned beans? No. No. <laughs> Oh my god! I'm, at, I'm like I'm imagining he's opening up these cans of sardines and leaving them around the class, and just be like, okay, now we're oh. stepping into history, everyone. You could smell it. <laughs> yeah. No thanks. No. Ugh. Has, has anyone ever seen the amazing Hilary Duff movie Cadet Kelly? Yes. Oh hell yes. Yes. <laughs> I right? fuck with when that she, movie. <laughs> the, the like military training scene where she's in the mud crawling under the barbed yeah. wire. Yeah. That's that's what he should have made us do. Yeah. Yeah. That's what he should have oh, yeah. made you do. Sure. You know what? Yeah. You know, um, this this might sound shocking, or maybe not shocking. Who knows? But when I was a kid and I would watch that movie, I'd grab like one of my like toy Nerf guns or something like that, and do the <laughs> try and do the the um, gun routines or whatever they do. Oh my gosh! The like right, what do they call it? Like it's like gun dancing or something. <laughs> I I, just, I forget what they call it. Um, it's like baton twirling, but with yeah, guns. yeah. And I was like, this is so cool. And then I I would do it. I was pretty proud of myself. I didn't <laughs> wow. keep it up though. I st- I can't still do it. Yeah. If you haven't seen Cadet Kelly, ten out of ten recommend. Okay. Jump on Disney Plus. Yeah. Yeah. Watch it. Watch it. <laughs> yeah. I don't think anyone has a story to beat yours though about this. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think. I mean, like, I don't have any outrageous stories. Certainly nothing to that degree. Doesn't even have to be school. Could be anywhere you were, like, in a museum or something. Right. Where something was just they're trying to teach you history, and you're just like, what? <laughs> This isn't how history works. 
is this really that accurate, making me sit with my feet in a bucket of water? Um, I will. You know what? I have no idea if she'll ever listen to this, but I'll, I'll give a shout out to my high school history teacher, Ms. Hatsafotis. She was great. She, she was like, like more energetic than I am, if that makes Uh-oh. any sense. Like she, she was just so into it. And I mean, you had to entertain like a group of teenagers in a history class. Like, what else are you going to do? So, yeah. so she would essentially like, imagine, has anyone seen Ant-Man? Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm so, oh my God. I'm so sad. I, I forget the name of the character. Who's the name of the character? Who does all those, the, those funny stories? Ant-Man? Oh, no. oh, 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 oh. Um, it's, it's, what's his name? It's a famous actor. It's Michael Pence, right? Or something like that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so imagine that way of telling a story, but it's how you tell history. Like that's, Whoa. that was her vibe. Like she'd be like, she'd be just be like rapidly just saying everything that happened. I think she explained how trench warfare World War One started in about like 10 minutes and was just acting it out partly the whole time. And she was, you have the German boys over here and you have, you have the other boys over there and they're all mad at each other. And, and, and the Germans are like, well, this is our line. And she slams a, a meter stick on the ground. And then the other people are like, this is our line. And they slam a meter stick on the ground and then they fight. And and that was it. That was how she explained it. That's so interesting because, like, it would be very memorable. But then, like, reflecting on it now, you'd be like, is that a proper way to speak about those experiences? Yeah. Hey, that's a good question. Love mm-hmm. Miss Hatsapotas. Love that class. That's, uh, yeah, it's really interesting. Wild indeed. Katie, Robin, do you have any any sort of stories? About? Mine were pretty standard. Uh, just, uh, what, what do we call it? a survey course you know you go over the history yeah. make your way through there's a few jokes here and there but that i can't i can't remember them now but they were entertaining but nothing crazy <laughs> they were good i swear i like history so for me i'm like this is wonderful I love yeah feed me more why don't we go to the opposite way and instead of saying like a memorable hi- experience of learning history what was like a really boring one for do, you, do either of you have like a really just one that was just so bad such a history nerd no i enjoyed it even though it was like bad i was fair enough i think some of the bad parts maybe would be playing an outdated movie and then just passion any context you just leave it yeah well for us like it sucks because there's not a lot of french movies so we would watch something like that but if you translate it so you get completely thrown off for the whole time so that that sucked a bit for me at least (laughs) yeah that's bad I forget the name of the movie, but in Miss Atsipotis' class, we watched The Pianist. Is that what it's? Oh my God. You watched The Pianist in grade 10? Yeah. <laughs> um, That's traumatic. It is. <laughs> You're right. I think she gave a disclaimer. I think she was like, if you need to leave, you can leave. Um, but like, I hope she. Yeah, get... we were. Oh my God. I'm shook. That's like, okay, we're going to watch Schindler's List. Yeah, we do Schindler's yeah. List. Yeah. But oh. The Pianist. Yep. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah, we watched that too. I cried in class. Yeah, it was hard. I would always go back to the classes to watch Schindler's List because I was friends with all the history teachers. So I'd be like, when are you watching Schindler's List? And they'd be like, oh, this week. And I'd be like, I'm just going to show up to your class unprompted. I'm going to sit in one of the desks. And they were like, okay. It was good fun. Wow. I mean, good fun in quotations. It obviously is. It's a good movie. It is a a very good movie. The Pianist is also a good movie, I will say. I like I watched it recently and I was traumatized. I can't imagine watching it at sixteen and being like, fifteen. Fifteen. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, why is it important to learn about history? Why are we forced to um, to learn about it in grade 10? And, well, pretty much since, oh, you can read now, you're in, like, first grade, we're going to start learning about it. And, yeah. Yeah. Why? Well, according to our curriculum, we learn history to become responsible citizens. It's almost like a work in our democratic society. Yeah. Yeah. And it, you can see it in how our curriculum is structured right it's mm-hmm. so pro-canada it's so pro-military which yeah. is like wild when you think about it yeah well like we said our main focus was world war one and two right and that's yeah. what most of us remember yeah i find this to be a, I mean, a really interesting conversation but what i find frustrating is this so okay so to be a responsible citizen in the context of the current curriculum i would argue that the four of us may not agree with that sort of responsible citizenship based on what's taught and what some people argue is that in the context of a curriculum history feels sort of authoritarian like you're telling people what to know about and uh and what facts to find important and that sort of thing like you're, you're teaching them particular often eschewed forms of of, of of history but i think it's more complicated in just in that like if we had our way, if the four of us had uh, the topics that we find interesting and that we find important put into the history curriculum, if there's more diversity, if, if, if there's more talk about, you know, sort of um, oppre- oppression and privilege, that same argument would still sort of apply. Like, do you know what I mean? Maybe even apply more, right? Are we yeah. building good citizens if they're just super patriotic? Like, is that a good citizen? But like, is it is it history's responsibility to build citizens at all? Well, we're building good. Their idea is like making a patriotic citizen is we're building a citizen that cares about their country, right? But that that their approach is by making us super fans of everything we do. So, <laughs> super fans. Is that responsible? Canadian Probably super not. fans. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I definitely think in terms of looking at Canadian history and Canadian curriculum versus, or I guess more like Canadian identity versus American identity, I feel. Canada has to work so much harder, but they're also so much more successful at kind of the, the citizen brainwashing and the instilling of nationalism in kids. Because the United States has obviously a very violent history with slavery and a bunch of other things, but mostly with this, a lot of it, I think, is is through its relation with um, with black people and and immigration and things as well too mm-hmm. whereas in canada obviously settler colonialism and how we've treated our indigenous people is very similar to slavery but it, like i i think at least in america black people are very like they still a lot of their culture was erased but they still have a culture and a lot of their culture comes from slavery and experiencing that if that makes sense but in canada it's it's so much less explicit because Canada has taken indigenous culture and turned it into Canada. Mm-hmm. Like we, the practice of making maple sugar and the maple tree has become our national mm. emblem. And one of my favorite examples is the Anukshuk, obviously an Inuit symbol, an Inuit structure, a part of their culture, was the official logo of the Vancouver 2010 Olympics. The entire yeah. world saw this is Canada, but... It's not. And I think we're taught that as kids, too. I didn't know, I think, until I went into university, just how, like, insidious a lot of the history that we learn is. And I know I've talked to you guys in the past about we're singing, again, horrible songs dressed as little Indian children, even though none of us are indigenous. Sorry, Indian in air quotes. Yeah, we're we're taught about the fur trade. And it seems like everyone got along and Mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. And but yeah, I feel like Canada 
as a settler state does a really, really good job of making all of that violence and history disappear into its Canada. Oh, yeah. We have a long history of shaping our image to look like something else or how we want it to be perceived, yep. right? Like you were saying about the Inukshuk, um, I read about this in Canada after World War II, we were trying to find our distinct image, trying to separate ourselves from the States and from Europe. So funny, funnily enough, which is not funny at all, they saw that the Inuit people at the same time were in distress. They were uh, they were starving because the whaling industry was being completely bombarded with Europeans and the fur trade died out and those people were starting to starve and they were becoming desperate and then the Canadian government's desperate to create an image so they realized here's an opportunity for us. I see that they have a unique way of representing themselves and their northern expression can be a unique image for us. So they started taking Inuit art and using it as their own. So they implemented uh, co-ops in, in Inuit communities and they said here's a place where you can create art and we'll buy it off you and you're going to make money and we're going to get an image. It's going to be great. But what they don't tell you is that the government was only buying pictures that they deemed were indigenous enough for them to create a good image. So artists who didn't create to what the government wanted would still starve and still not um, progress or be able to do, have the freedoms that we have today. So it's, a little, it's very sketchy where we started and where we are now and not being able to talk about that. Also, I was just going to say, don't get me started on the sort of like black experience in Canada and how erased that is like oh my god well I mean I don't want to get too into it right now I think a lot of how Canada sort of shapes its identity is something that it, uh, something else something that it isn't is based on their ability to sort of compare themselves and juxtapose themselves with other major white powers places like Britain and places like the United States you know, sort of like what you're talking about there Robin that was something like for example Canadian slavery and how I mean it takes a lot of effort to convince people that Canada ever even had slavery. But even if you get that idea in someone's head, the response that you often get is something like, well, okay, it wasn't as bad as the States or something. We were nicer to our slaves. We were, we, we, we got rid of it earlier than they did. And that sort of thing, which is just incredibly frustrating for so many reasons, obviously, but it gets at this idea that, that like, Canadian identity we, we see ourselves as this sort of like polite kinder version of the United States or some or someplace like that I remember learning about like the Underground Railroad too and yeah oh it's basically yes. like the United States was horrible <laughs> slavery was horrible yeah. Canada was great <laughs> we were great yeah. and uh so as soon as you came through there you were in Canada yeah. and you never experienced racism again and everyone was one big happy family oh which yeah is not true at all no uh, you could take a little stroll down downtown London, where Ontario, where we are right now. We have a, a district called Soho, which other London, the London, England also has. <laughs> but ours, ours is a little different, but it is traditionally a black neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And you can see that there is a lot of poverty. There is a lot of drug use. And all of that comes from it being a historically black neighborhood because the, the people who escaped slavery through the underground railroad came they settled in london and immediately faced a lot of racism and weren't able to buy their own houses they were frozen out of a lot of different places and yeah so i feel like if any anyone in canada can probably do a lot a little digging about their their local history and figure out pretty quickly that the kind of race relations that happened in the states happen here too and still happen here oh yeah yeah i mean like often enough self-emancipated slaves 
would come to Canada, feel the like overt racism here, and then return to the northern states. Often enough, places like Philadelphia and New York, uh, areas in some areas in Ohio, these places, you know, felt more they felt more integrated and they felt more uh, respected than 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 Canada. Um, not to mention, and this is a, a big thing with me, is that like for as long as enslaved people were sort of trying to self-emancipate themselves and, 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 and run away from the plantations. It wasn't really until like the 1850s that Canada became a really big beacon for a lot of people. Some people emigrated up to Canada before then, but for like the 1830s, or 1820s, 30s, 40s, they would often go to the northern states. And it wasn't until the Fugitive Slave Act of 1851 happened that people came to Canada a lot because what the, what the, what the Fugitive Slave Act did was essentially it gave permission to slave catchers um, and bounty hunters it gave them permission to go to the northern states find a self-emancipated enslaved person and take them and and bring them back to the plantations in the south and so it became a lot uh, a lot more dangerous to live in the northern states self-emancipated um, enslaved person and so uh, that's when they really started more mass migrating to to areas in canada but even then they'd, they'd often go back down to the states because of the racism they'd experience here so there you go <laughs> and these are stories we don't hear in our classrooms not is... at all insane no i was just gonna say i don't think no. i ever learned about the underground railroad like in school straight up mm-hmm. really we had to read a book on it there's like this really old mm. children's book uh that i had to read in grade four i remember oh wow that's young grade four five yeah i don't remember learning about it in any sort of curricular way like it mm. didn't feel like a big part of the it felt like maybe like one or two days of my elementary school career elementary school especially like never in high school did i, I ever learn about it but yeah. Well, high school is modern yeah. history. And oh, quotes. of course. Okay. And you know, you know, black people don't live in modern Canada, right? No. Of course not. That's what. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. It's so interesting how like okay, history is supposed to be about teaching us to be responsible citizens, but none of the history that we're taught is then like related to the current day and like related to okay, and how do we use this yeah. to be better people? Yeah. How do we how do we recognize that the racism that was happening? during the time when in the states against slavery was legal or in the time when people were escaping to Canada from the Underground Railroad, that same racism is still happening today. And same with Indigenous people. I feel like all we're taught, and even the structure of the curriculum itself is very interesting in Canada because we kind of go back to the very beginning. And again, I remember learning in this in like grade one, grade two, my early part of education was Indigenous people and you know, you learn about the three sisters, the squash, the beans, the corn, and like all these kind of like conventional things that are always pan-indigenized. It is always that all of indigenous people did this specific thing and this was their specific culture, which is totally not true. And then you would kind of move on from that because then the settlers arrived in the habitants and then you progress, progress, progress. And now we're in the First World War and the Second World War and indigenous people are not talked about ever again. And you immediately go to the point where you're like, well, then they must not be really around or they must not have a culture now. They must have been completely absorbed into the body politic, which is exactly what Canadian government wanted um, with the Indian Act. So, yeah, it's very interesting. Like, not only are we taught that in content, but the structure of which what the things that we learn is meant to signify to us that these issues no longer happen anymore and we won the wars and we're great and we're the peacekeeping country and everyone loves us. The peacekeeping country. This is exactly it. This is this is where you got to think about like the the power structures that are fundamentally and systemically at play in Canada and and how all of those are privileged people who only really care about privileged people, you know, that like 
that the reasons why a responsible citizen is someone who knows about the world wars and and knows about basically the history of white canada is because white canadians white anglo canada too white anglo canada yep um all that sort of stuff they're the people who who are are in charge and and so that's so they see that as responsible citizenship because that's their identity and they don't really care about the other identities and that that's a big part of it but then of course living in sort of this multicultural pluralistic globalized world that we live in it's hard to not um acknowledge those sorts of identities at all and so we shape canada into this sort of peacekeeping nation this nation that's uh, on an international level we're a part of the un as peacekeepers or you know, we became a country non-violently. We didn't have a revolution. Like, we're, we're nicer people. We say sorry all the time. But you, you cultivate this identity so that if someone says that a Canadian or that Canada was a part of really awful atrocities, it would go against everything you know Canadian identity to be. I don't know. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it, it <laughs> that sounds a little sense. conspiracy so theory good. or not. But, <laughs> that's not a conspiracy that, theory. Uh, that's a fact. That's my take. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. One of um, one of the things that I'm really passionate about that I kind of studied a lot in my undergraduate degree in media studies is about how white people and specifically white Canadians kind of create their own culture. I feel like Canada is especially good at this, even though whiteness is the absence of culture, <laughs> if that makes sense. If we're, I think a lot of the curriculum and the things that we were taught are kind of meant to give us that comfort of like we have a culture of you know again maple syrup and all these beavers and all these great things and peacekeeping when we don't again it's those are kind of they're not lies they're truths but they're like half truths and we're not told the whole thing and and i remember too like having to do family trees my family is Scottish and English and Welsh and blah, blah, blah. Of and course. that's, that's your, and it is to an extent a culture, but it's not. And then you're not ever taught about how, I don't know if you guys have ever learned about, you probably have heard about, you know, the backpack of privilege that white people have where yeah. we mm-hmm. are able to have all these tools in our back pocket that because we're white, we can use all these things. And yeah. obviously this is problematic because all four of us are white. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> you can't you can't see us so you wouldn't know but we are yes. so yeah it's just it's just very interesting and that is something again that I really wish that I was taught was maybe not like you don't have a culture because you're white but at least it would have been really great to have an indigenous person telling us indigenous histories mm-hmm. or a black person telling us black histories and as we are taught by as little kids that this is how you talk about these things and we're mostly settlers and you talk about it by kind of co-opting this culture as your own and you only ever learn the one side as well yeah so i think that's changing i i haven't been in like a classroom with little kids very recently so i don't exactly know but i do feel like people are getting a little bit more aware of these things and I'm hoping that the next generation isn't as bad as like the baby boomer generation and maybe even our generation too with like being very privileged and white and very ignorant. But yeah. Shall we circle back to the uh, the original question, which was why do we teach history? Why do we teach history? <laughs> but maybe like why, why do you think we should like beyond like the practical, like why does the state do it? Like why do we, why are we passionate about it? Well, I think that uh, I don't want to speak for you folks, but I think that the four of us would agree that um, a big part of why you want to learn teach history and, and 
have people learn history is so that you can relate it to your present moment um and and hopefully like the idealistic thing that a historian ought to feel is the idea that like we're we're talking about this history and talking about the past so that we can shape a better future you know mm-hmm. um it might not be super practical but that that's that's the ideology mm-hmm. behind it that's the idealism of like i mean and honestly god even military historians i'm not really into military history i'm sure none of us are really into military history um and i think military history sometimes gets a bad rep as uh sort of like people who just who just know the different tanks and like can look at a gun and tell you what model it is or whatever you know but yeah. honestly god there are some really important um military historians who um analyze like sort of the the context for why wars begin and and the outcomes of wars and how wars affect citizens and people and all this is really important stuff because i mean unfortunately uh our world is is constantly plagued by war um and conflict and violence and so uh it's it's important to be able to to think about those histories and to think about past wars and and hopefully find a way to not have war happen in the future that you're you know you're dealing when you're studying war you're dealing with one of the the most common human phenomena which is awful and frightening in so many ways to 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 know that war is like that i think the the last six thousand years 94 percent of them have had at least one major center of the world at war that's all yeah yeah okay yeah so like you know so studying it as in a pacifistic way as a way to end conflict and as to foster harmony i feel like that's incredibly important i know at least one military historian who makes that his mantra War history is so weird that way. Maybe because, again, I'm not I haven't really done it in like in depth. But as a kid, like in school, we did a lot of it, obviously, Mm. as we've talked about. But it is so strange. I always remember Remembrance Day. Remembrance Day in Canada is such a weird thing. (laughs) You have someone. First of all, everyone gets their poppy. And you go down to the assembly and all of the the bad, weird kids are sticking it through their palms and through their fingers, like through their skin. Yeah. Weird. And then you'd have someone, some really cute little old guy from the Legion would come and talk to you about being a veteran and some sort of traumatizing experience. There was one time in high school where we had um, a veteran who had like gotten out of the service. Like he was young. He was in his 30s. And that was really interesting. So he was in Iraq, I think. Yeah, that was very interesting because it made things a lot more like, oh, shit, like this is this is real and this is happening right now. But it is so weird. And then and then you sing the national anthem and you have the moment of silence and you'd have uh, actually I played trumpet in high school. So I always did the last post <gasps> at my high school. Look at you go. So we did the last post. It was so fun. It's it's really fun because it's usually played on a bugle. So you do it on trumpet, but you don't use any valves. You just do it all with your mouth anyway. Yeah. So anyway, it's just a very morbid thing. I'd like to contribute that we always sang the Dixie Tricks Traveling Soldiers. So cheers to Remembrance Day. <laughs> the pinnacle of Remembrance Day for me is just the the Flanders Fields poem that I didn't know for a long time was written by a Canadian. When, when I was in, when I was in <laughs> elementary school and high school, I just thought that that was like the World War One poem. Like so I did I. That was so did poem I. That, that yeah. everyone in the world knew and recognized as the world war one poem i think britain does it too i think i think it's very popular in britain yeah because we were a colony fair enough makes sense okay well that's that's nice ours was so different ours was very somber our school's near base borden 
and uh, a large population of baseboard and people they're they're French so their kids went to our school and a lot of the parents came so almost everyone in the gym of our whole school we were just like 400 people almost everyone had someone that was involved in it so it was always very serious ours are pretty serious too um we'd sometimes have like current soldiers come in um, yeah, wow. from, yeah. and, and talk about their their experiences essentially just like a lot of people fetishize remembrance day as like a military day it's not like you know it's more like canada's military fervor than it is about remembering is. the atrocities of world war one all right so this is a quote from title is called if you're not doing history to make change what the f are you doing it for which is a great we'll link it in the we'll link it in the show notes all right so the quote is history shows that things don't happen in a vacuum it shows how lived experiences interact with shape and are shaped by structures it provides evidence for and narration about people's lives different from our own it highlights how things were bad things are bad and this doesn't come out of nowhere it shows that people survive in spite of trauma and that people remain alive by remembering legacy. I like this idea about it shaping, um, that history is shaped by structures and that lived experience is shaped by structures and interacts with structures. I think that's a really neat idea. I don't know. I feel like sometimes when, when, when at least when I've done social history in my undergrad, um, I'd often think about history as just people and people and not think about how institutions and structures and larger bodies still made an impact. It's it history is really hard to think about because it's like breaking a lived experience down into every single conceivable bullet point possible and then wrapping it all together into one thing and that's what you're looking at. Like everything is always interacting with everything. That you can't get away with 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 taking any little bit of it out. And so anyway, so I like that part of the uh, of the quote that it talks about that. Yeah, I think one of the things I really like like about history and when we talk about like why we teach history is this idea of recognizing where structures in society come from and their historical roots is really important. And we can see the way that structures affect lives over time. And that helps inform your empathy for understanding other people and also just identifying structures that you live within that you might not automatically think of as structures. I think the remembering legacies is important too. It's it's talking about roots and knowing your past because like we've mentioned before, you can't move forward. You can't grow unless you recognize what has been done before and make sure that you do better. Yeah. yeah. And I think that ties to what we were talking about. Do Canadians know the legacy of Canada if they don't know that the pain that they've inflicted on lots and lots of people, right? That's a big question we have to ask ourselves. I think one of the biggest things that now we are starting to get a lot of people more aware about the the kind of colonial violence that has happened in Canada's history and continues to happen is how do we, especially a lot of us as white Canadians or maybe evil pe- even people who have recently immigrated here who weren't directly related to the violence of colonization, is how do we deal with white guilt? And how do we get past it? Yeah. <laughs> I think history could either be a really good tool for that or it could be something that just kind of it's like there's nothing else besides being guilty. Yeah. And like I've talked to a lot of talked to a lot of like baby boomers in particular and like older people who are very much I, f- I feel horrible. And this actually happened in a class one time. We had an older student in um, indigenous literature class about trauma. Oh. And she was like, 
I feel really sorry. I'm sorry that my ancestors did this, but oh no! I ne- <laughs> if I was alive, then I never would have. I never would have taken part in that. I don't agree with it at all. Uh, and I'm a very kind person. I'm not a violent person. I love all animals. I love blah 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 blah. And you're just like, yeah. that's not the yeah. point. Your guilt is valid. Anything sure. that you feel is valid, but sure. it's not an excuse to like not take accountability for those things and so yeah it's an interesting thing people need to remember too like even i've had that issue when i was um teaching some kids about indigenous history and colonization i've had like a young maybe fourth grader say like oh i'm i'm guilty of this i'm, this. I'm guilty i'm guilty and it's like whoa wait you are not your pa- like that's not you you yeah. right in this moment are able to learn and make better decisions you can't live with that. You can't harbor that inside of you. Oh, what you can do is just do better and learn and continue yeah. learning and growing. Yeah. Liz, I, I see I see two problems with what that person was talking about. Uh, what that person was... At, at least two problems, I'd say. At least, yeah. <laughs> Perhaps more, certainly. But two things I'm thinking about right now. One of them is that... So one thing that we'll probably discuss more in this podcast as we go along, for anyone listening who doesn't know, historical context and historical thinking are tools used by historians to understand the the moment in history meaning that people in history were driven free will aside <laughs> like we're, we're, were driven and influenced by their culture by the surroundings by the institutions around them and they in turn it re-influenced those cultures as a sort of cyclical process and so to say if i was back there <laughs> i i love everyone's you wouldn't have had the surrounding influences that you have in your modern day to have that opinion um, that was the first thing I, I, I thought of. But the second thing, kind of going off this guilt piece, I find that a lot of people, a lot of white people in particular, uh, get really personally defensive when they're confronting this sort of history. What did I do wrong? Like, like now I, like you're telling me that I can't like X historical figure because now they're involved in this in this thing called colonialism. Now I feel attacked and my identity feels attacked. It's completely personal um, and, and ruthless in that way. And that's so difficult to unpack <laughs> with people. You can understand and acknowledge and apologize and feel bad for and, and, and guilty of the legacy of the of, of your ancestry and, and, and the legacy of, of the culture of which you're a part. But there is a degree of separation that that's healthy. That like it's also I, I, I doubt anyone is ever just wanting an apology forever and ever and ever and ever. Because apologies rarely do much, you know? Just apologizing for it isn't enough. That you have to sort of, like, recognizing that that was a really bad thing and has influenced our modern world. And unfortunately, we can't go back. So what do we do now to to help people move forward? Um, And that's the piece that's missing so often in these conversations with, with, um, with these histories. Is people either don't apologize and blame someone else, do apologize and can't get past the fact that they're so guilty... Or um, apologize but say that they're different. But in all these instances, they're not thinking about how they can take that history and move forward with it. Yeah, like guilt isn't productive. It's fine if you feel guilty, right? Like, And recognizing these structures is really hard. And especially when we're talking about like older adults, right? Looking like at us, I remember I first learned about white privilege when I was like 12. I had not even developed a sense of myself yet. Understanding myself within that was so different. But for like older people, they're like, but this is like everything I am. And I'm like, yeah, you're allowed to feel guilty. That's fine. But you feeling guilty doesn't do anything. It is only helpful to you. And at the end of the day, like, what are you going to do about it? Right? Yeah. In this weird, perverse way, it makes you feel better. 
you know yeah. it's like yeah it's like i feel guilty i feel guilty it's, it's like the the classic um, medieval monastic thing of like self-guilt and and like self-harm to please god or whatever yeah like, yeah. like self-flagellation yeah yeah, yeah yeah what was the question again what was... i have no idea <laughs> oh right the... i have no idea <laughs> the quote we were just talking about the quote no this is good yeah. this is good circling back to teaching if we're talking more about teaching is there like something that you feel very passionately apart from what we've talked about how there are historical thinking and then there's like historical facts is there something that very passionate you think people need to understand more about the discipline before they can understand history is a very broad question what's difficult to get over is that you do as much as it's hard and as much as we we dog on it we still need to learn the basics you still need to learn the story and then you can go back and then analyze it and critique it and think about it really and try and contextualize it in different ways but it's just something that you can't surmount you can't just start trying to rip apart a piece if you don't even know what happened which makes it really difficult and there's a lot to learn so it's almost as if you'll never get to that point unless you continue history into higher education i mean you know me katie i'm always a fan of both that <laughs> i think you need to do both at the same time i think of it like a video game skin or something the thing that that never changes the mechanics of the video game or in this case are are how to do history things like historical thinking cause and effect all these different things that historians think about and do or to write histories um so that's the the mechanics of the video game and then there's the skin that the video game comes with which is the history facts that they that they analyze with that method basis but really at the end of the day you can just like put in some code and change the skin so so instead of what you would originally see in the video game you now see something different same sort of principle applies where like you just if you just change the historical facts the the pillars of what you do remain the same if at the foundational level the fundamental level i'm teaching how to do history and i know a lot about black history so we're going to do that but a student in in my class is let's say really interested in i don't know the history of airplanes like you could <laughs> you could uh uh essentially change the history that you teach and so you still you still teach like the foundational aspects of how to do history but then the history facts instead of just becoming facts about black history become facts about the history of airplanes and at the end of the day they're interchangeable i don't know if that makes any sense to anyone but that's how i see it is that is that the facts are completely interchangeable that they're just skins of the same system that you can do the exact same thing over and over again the thing that can't change is is how you do the history and, and how you research it well i guess we want to talk maybe about like the future of teaching and learning history or at least more ideal solutions yeah how can it be better well okay for me i feel like we don't teach history as a discipline until we reach university and even like higher level university history is a discipline that when we teach it as just facts not only is that untrue uh, just about like history in general but it also doesn't help when you go to higher level education and you're like i don't know what historiography is and i'm very very lost and i just would like more of that at an earlier age i agree it's so shocking to get into a history class in undergrad and then the prof's like okay so what's your opinion on this wait what we have opinions to have an opinion this is allowed (laughs) (laughs) did it not happen in 1932 yeah, what do you mean? There's only one way of talking about this. How can I have a different view? And it's like, well, guess what? There's so much more to the world than you think there is right now. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And I think, too, it's I wish it was more emphasis on 
historical thinking mm-hmm. and like critical thinking mm-hmm. and how to use history and learn history so you can learn other things and apply it to other things mm-hmm. as opposed to just World War One happened from 1914 <laughs> to 1918 and blah, 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 right? And then Franz Ferdinand was assassinated this day. I don't know. Yeah, we're always taught that it's like the facts that matter, yeah. but obviously it's not the facts that matter. And if we were able to look at that in a more critical way, history would make more sense for everyone. Yeah. It would be so much more loved and adaptable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If we change it like that, it wouldn't go back to that curriculum plan, eh? Like that yeah. plan of making the ideal citizen, it would just go to making totally. the ideal person maybe being able to be reflective and critical. Right. Yeah. Like be able to criticize, critique p- modern politicians. It's really hard for people who don't have critical thinking and critical reading to critique like modern speeches, for example. And that's something history can do mm-hmm. is it can teach you how to look at something that someone's saying and be like, oh, but what's your personal bias or oh, like who is this for, right? Like, who are you actually trying to speak to in this? No, it's just that, like, like when I'm reading a history book, I'm not reading it to know the dates that it happened first. I'm looking for the argument and the interpretation and, and all that sort of stuff. That's the part that, that really matters about what they're doing. I mean, I only care about dates because it sort of contextualizes where it takes place in the rest of the story because I already know a lot about the topic, let's say, and so I want to fit it into what I already know about. So, like, if I know about an X topic from uh, 1900 to 2000, and this says is it's about this topic from 1930 to 1932, then I know what comes before it, I know what comes after it already, and it helps me sort of come to my own conclusions while I'm reading the history book or whatever. So, like, it only matters to put it in relation to other things, which is not happening in the curriculum. It's like, it's like they got to the first step, and they were like, this is all we need. And it's like, you don't know <laughs> why that's important, <laughs> you know? It's incomplete. It doesn't matter that World War One took place between 1914 to 1918, it matters that it took place in that time in comparison to, 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 to the surrounding times and what else was happening at the right. same time mm-hmm. in the different times. Mm-hmm. It only matters in comparison to other things. I wish, too, that like people we could learn about history in more of a cyclical way than a linear way, if that makes sense. For example, I, one of the things that I remember my dad talking to me about, because my dad is a huge war buff, specifically like World War like II and like, aviation. Like all dads, <laughs> exactly. World War II uh, in color on Netflix. Oh, my God. That's all I'm going to watch. You know, it's pretty classic. But I remember, like, one of the things that he said that really stuck to me, because I think we were watching something about the Holocaust, or I was learning about it in school, and I was just kind of like, it's ugly and traumatizing, and do we have and see these pictures and learn about how horrible it really was? And he said, yeah, because if we don't, it's going to happen again. And I, I see things like nazism and nationalism and propaganda happening today that have happened in the past and we're not like looking to history and being like we need to know this and we need to know that it's happening now and so i don't again i haven't been in like high school classroom in a while but i think if i was a high school history teacher looking at the uh riots that happened over the summer about george floyd and about police brutality okay let's then let's use that and let's learn about the LA riots in 1992 that also happened out of a reaction for police brutality. Okay, let's go all the way back to slavery and how exactly these relations between races came to be and how do we understand that? And so I think it it makes history so much more practical and it makes it so much more easy to understand if that makes sense. And it's kind of comforting too, but also not comforting 
you know what oh, I mean? Because yeah. like you don't want to think about like if we don't know this, the Holocaust is going to happen again. But it's true. I don't yeah. know. That's what I'm, I don't know what I'm getting at. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, or like I, I think of like an assignment. Think about the the tactics of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and relate them to the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s in particular and see how they're similar and see how they're different. And like, you know, like I'm never a fan of um, history repeats itself because that that would suggest sort of a world in which things never really change. But again, as we've said before, we're living in a very different world than we were however many years ago and how many centuries ago. And so it's not that it repeats itself exactly, but there are absolutely trends <laughs> and commonalities and things that continue to yeah. rear um, and, and also influence each other. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's a really fine balance of it's not repeating itself, but it's also not it's not like it's not going to happen ever again, right. you know, or that it's over. Right. Something yeah. like the Holocaust yeah. could easily happen again. And but it's, it does. It's, right. It is happening it, it in China is, right yeah, now. Right. Yeah. yeah. With the the concentration yeah. camps in the Uyghurs. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, <laughs> I mean, the, the theory is that a historical perspective would help you acknowledge that and try and dismantle that as best as possible. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. you have to kind of have the people in power or in charge acknowledge that. And that's a harder thing to do. Yeah, we could do a whole episode on genocide because it's like the big like, have yeah. we ever declared a genocide? No, not while it's happening. Yeah. <laughs> we should do a whole series on genocide. I feel like, you know, like Katie, you could you could like lead us through like five <laughs> podcasts. I was recently thinking about Holocaust denial. And I, I think we should touch on it in the next episode when we talk about history as constructed, right? Because I feel like that opens the door for denial. All right. So that's how we change the history curriculum. <laughs> yep. There it's simple, guys. Yeah. Voila. I, I feel like, okay, I don't know. I'm hoping that we made sense. But part of me is like, I'm sorry if this was a wild ride that made very little sense, especially if you're not Canadian. <laughs> this is true for any international viewers out there. Because, you know, we got loads of those. <laughs> yeah, we have so many of those. <laughs> if you are, though. You could like email us or comment or whatever, and <laughs> I'm I would be interested to know what your experience oh, yeah. is, if any. Oh yeah. And how how you learned history is different. But thanks for listening. This has been a great time. I hope you understood. Uh, let us know how you learned history in the country that you live in. Let us know if you learned history if you are Canadian the same way that we talked about it, or if you had very different experiences. We'd love to hear those. All right, bye. 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 See you on the flippity flop. Oh, see you on the... Oh, I missed it. Flippity flop. (laughs) Patrick gets so excited every time flippity flop happens. It's great. Oh, my God. He's like, oh, my God. Honestly, in a dark, dark world, this brings me hope. Yeah. Yeah. See you on the flippity flop. Digital Dust is recorded on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Lenapawak, and Attawandran peoples, on lands connected with the London Township and Sombra Treaties of 1796 and the One Spoon Covenant Wampum. This land continues to be the home to First Nation peoples, Métis peoples, and Inuit people, whom we recognize as the contemporary stewards of the land and waters we are on today. Digital Dust is hosted and produced by Elizabeth Edwards, Katie Gaskin, Patrick Kingan, and Robin Marshall. Sound design by Elizabeth Edwards. Audio transcription by Katie Gaskin. Our theme music is by Matthias Millar. And Patrick's the best. No, I'm not. All right.